Volume Two, Chapter Five of Evelyn, or A Heart Unmasked, a novel by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor, Chapter Five. And thou will slumber's dewy cloud fall round thee without thy mother's hand to smooth thy bed. Mrs. Hemans, from the same to the same, December first. A new affliction hangs, like a hair suspended sword, over the heads of our friends. They have been roused from their stupefying sorrow by the dangerous illness of little Lilla. For a fortnight past, she has pined away, never playing with infantine glee and often refusing food. It seemed as though she missed her mother's kiss, or as if she was infected by the gloom around her. Her disease is an internal and slowly consuming fever. Her soft blue eyes grow bluer, and her blanched skin whiter, and her lovely limbs have lost their dimpled roundness. This bud of beauty must bloom in heaven. Mrs. Willard never leaves the infant's cradle, and for two nights past I have watched her from midnight until noon. Even her toilette, which I never before saw her disregard, is now wholly neglected. This omission, more loudly than words, betokens the intensity of her anxiety. She seems to cling to the idea that in her medical attendant, and not his maker, is vested the power of saving and restoring this child at will. She daily appeals to him with beseeching earnestness and implores him to permit the child to live. And when Dr. R. promises to use his utmost endeavors, she persuades herself that Lilla's restoration is ensured. Mrs. Willard's chamber is in the basement story, and since the child's illness, Mr. Willard has occupied a different room, for the infant remains with its grandmother. Last night we were sitting beside the cradle, watching the suffering babe as it tossed about its snowy little arms in an unquiet slumber. Ellen had stolen into the room to take one look at the beloved child, and then retired to her couch. Soon after, Mr. Merritt entered. For some minutes he stood silently, with folded arms and rigid features, at the cradle's head, then suddenly stooped, touched the infant's fevered lips with his own, scarcely less burning ones, and before we could address him he had left the room. As the child moved on its pillow I saw, by the imperfect light of the velouse, something glittering upon its soft cheek. It was a tear a tear shed from an eye most unused to the melting mood, its father's tear. Mrs. Willard saw the bright drop at an instant it caught my eye, as she gently wiped it away, her own rolled in its place. It was past midnight, and we were now the only watchers, the only mourners that courted not slumber. For some time we conversed together in a low tone, while Mrs. Willard, at short intervals, gently rocked the cradle with her foot. A sound, 
as though of a hand trying to force open the outer shutter, startled us. Mrs. Willard caught hold of my hand and whispered, What was that? We remained silent for a few minutes, but the noise was not repeated. We had just concluded that our fears had been aroused by the wind shaking the shutter, and had recommenced our whispered conversation when we were again disturbed. The tread of stealthy steps in the courtyard could be distinctly heard. Again we listened in profound silence. The footsteps were no longer audible, but a sob, a low, stifled, groan-like sob, struck our ears. "'Who can that be?' said Mrs. Willard, approaching her terrified face to mine. I could only echo her own question in answer. "'Kate, I thought I heard the sound again. You are so much braver than I am. Go and see.' I proceeded to comply with her request, and left the room tremulous, not from fear, but with agitation. I groped my way along the entry, for the faint light which glimmered from the open chamber door hardly assisted me. With some difficulty I found the bolt of the door that led to the courtyard, and noiselessly drew it back. My hands shook so violently that I could scarcely turn the knob, but it was turned at length. The door unclosed, and I thrust out my head. I looked about me, but at first saw nothing in the darkness. Just as I was about to reclose the door, I caught a glimpse of a female figure hastily retreating through the open gate of the courtyard. I sprang up the steps to gain a nearer view, and perhaps to follow it, but the form had disappeared. I only beheld the watchman stalking past the door, and I began to fancy that my active and excited imagination had converted his stalwart frame into that of a woman. I returned to Mrs. Willard, but could give no satisfactory answer to her anxious questions. We passed the rest of the night in watching and listening for the return of the steps, but they were not again audible. Towards morning, the infant slept more quietly, and a gentle perspiration bedewed its tender little limbs. This was a favourable sign, and the only one which has permitted me for a spare moment to share Mrs. Willard's hopes. December 25th Last Christmas Eve glad music resounded through the house, which was Evelyn's home. Merry voices and ringing laughter burst upon the entranced ear. Living tableau feasted the delighted eye. Evelyn, in the morning splendor of her unsullied beauty, was the queen of the fete, and Walter, with a joyous and worshipping heart, bowed before his idol. Another Christmas Eve has come. The voice of merriment and the laugh of gaiety are changed to the subdued tone of despair, and the wild sob of anguish in that very apartment where those living tableau greeted our enchanted eye, a lifeless but not less lovely picture, transfixes our eyes. Evelyn's star is set, and Walter's heavy heart 
may never again know a joyous pulse. And what picture has taken the place of those gorgeous tableaux? An impressive and warning one, though every day displayed to human sight. One of those richly carved chairs upon which Evelyn so often has sat, with her infant smiling in her arms, now supports a miniature coffin. The coffin is lined with a spotlessly white drapery, and from amidst its folds the scarcely less snowy face of Lilla shows forth. The lily is culled and the stem broken. An angelic smile, the parting smile of the blissful spirit, as it bids farewell to earth, is indelibly stamped upon the infant's beautiful lips. Its marble brow is wreathed with a chaplet of white sweet alyssum, and the chiseled hands folded upon the spotless bosom contain a sprig of the same aromatic flower. Those flowers were culled, and that garland woven by Ellen's hand. I knew it as soon as I saw the wreath, for I remember well the capacious green box in her chamber window, where her favorite sweet alyssum is ever in bloom. Yesterday morning, our little Lilla obviously revived. Her fever left her. She recognized Mrs. Willard, once or twice smiled in her face, and while in her father's arms, feebly lifted up her tiny hand to pat his cheek. She will recover, exclaimed Mrs. Willard, hopefully. She is almost well. Heaven grant it, said Mr. Merritt, pressing the now doubly dear infant to his heart. An hour afterwards, the child's former languor returned. She grew faint, and was restored by a potion which Dr. R. had left. The faintness recurred at short intervals, and Mrs. Willard became alarmed and sent for her physician. Long before the messenger could reach his residence, the child had expired on its grandmother's lap but so gently was its last sigh heaved. So softly did the angels free the pure spirit committed to their guardianship that Mrs. Willard thought the babe still breathed. She could not believe that the jewel had been borne away and that she held but the empty and now worthless casket in her arms. When the infant's cold and stiffening limbs at last convinced her of the fatal truth, she grew frantic with grief. She lifted up the child, shook it gently to produce some motion of its members, wildly chafed its hands, feet, and temples, and forced the restorative medicine it had before taken into its tiny mouth. The cordial flowed from its lips again, and no sign of life was visible. Then Mrs. Willard started up, and in the most impious and terrific manner upbraided heaven for having robbed her of her sole remaining treasure. I would not shock your ears by repeating the terrible words she used. 
Fortunately, at this crisis, Dr. R. entered. Lila was taken from the arms of Mrs. Willard, who was carried out of the room in a violent fit of hysteria. As soon as Dr. R. pronounced that every effort to restore the child were useless, I sought Mr. Merritt, for I had heard him entering the house a few moments after the physician. I feared that the mournful news might be communicated to him too abruptly. At one glance, he must have discovered all that I came to tell, for he averted his face as he convulsively clasped my hand. And when his countenance was again turned towards me, I saw that he had bitten his quivering lip until the trace of blood was visible. We must bravely bear our trials, said I in a soothing voice, or we cannot disarm them of their poignancy. I cannot be more wretched than I am, was his heart-rending reply. He evidently desired to be alone, that he might give vent to the grief which pride repressed, and I left him to seek Ellen. I found her by Mrs. Willard's bed, weeping herself, while she was trying to console or pacify her frenzied mother. I remained with her and aided her in the performance of her duties for some hours, but my sympathy for Mrs. Willard received a severe shock when I remarked that in the midst of her lamentation, her most frequent ejaculation was, What will become of us now? What will become of us? Selfishness was still predominant. And yet, though in a different manner, is not all grief for the dead selfish, especially grief for a departed infant? True, the mother's heart is rent as she yields up her child, the dearest portion of herself, but to whom does she yield it? To God and to the care of celestial angels who tenderly receive the infant spirit, lovingly instructed by infusing holy ideas into its infantile mind and gradually initiate it into the knowledge of goodness and truth and into the heavenly delights which proceed from that knowledge until the spirit reaches its maturity and becomes an angel. The hereditary evil propensities, which are necessarily transmitted to it by its parents, have never been appropriated, and therefore form no barrier to the reception of that ineffable happiness which springs from goodness alone. It moves in an atmosphere redolent of love, and every core of its sinless heart is attuned to joy. Could a breast wholly unselfish be found on this earth, would it not meekly and smilingly resign heaven's dearest gift, a perfect child, when that child was summoned by its creator to this holy nurturing? As I gazed upon the marble-like and lifeless form that had once enclosed Lilla's pureless spirit, a vision of a paradisical garden with its arched walks formed of laurel esplandiers floated before my eyes, and I saw a train of seraphic infants with their radiant brows and white bosoms and tender arms garlanded with flowers of the most resplendent hues, and then with their graceful arms lovingly entwined about each other, they entered the garden. The beds of flowers seemed to express their joy by increasing splendor, 
and the perfume-laden air wafted its most aromatic odors about the happy spirits. And then I thought I saw two angels, more beautiful than words can express, and clad in robes of lustrous white, accompanying the innocent throng. And while the children gambled about them, they insinuated something holy into all their sports, something representative of celestial goodness combined with angelic truth. The vision faded. I found myself gazing upon Lilla's corpse, and I inwardly rejoiced that her spirit was with the angels, and sighed not on remembering that the soulless clay would soon be moldering in the earth. In New York, it is a very general custom to place the coffin which holds the corpse of the deceased in an open apartment that the friends of the family and even strangers may visit and take their last adieu of the remains. This afternoon, a couple of hours before the funeral, Ellen and I were standing at the foot of the coffin, once again contemplating that beautiful statue within, when a lady, dressed in a widow's mourning, glided into the room. The sweeping black veil that almost enveloped her whole form was gathered in such thick folds over her face that we could not distinguish a single feature. As she neither noticed nor saluted us, we concluded that she was a stranger. She hurried towards the coffin, then paused, and with her hands pressed tightly upon her heart, she stood for a long time unmovably gazing upon the infant. Her attitude was one of despairing, speechless woe. My pulses throbbed tumultuously at the presence of this strange being, and my emotion was reciprocated by Ellen. Suddenly the lady sank upon her knees, and lifting her pall-like veil, in a manner which permitted it to enshroud the coffin without exhibiting her face, she pressed her lips in one long, agonizing kiss upon those of the corpse. Slowly then she rose, with her eyes still intently fixed upon the child, and, turning away, departed. Ellen followed the retreating figure with her eyes, and then looked bewilderingly at me as though she hardly dared to give utterance to her thoughts. At last she said, That beautiful figure, her air, her step, do they not remind you of somebody? I could only answer by an involuntary sigh. She was thinner, much thinner than... Ellen interrupted herself and remained lost in thought. Once more she addressed me and said, who could she be? Some bereaved mother, perhaps, replied I, whose grief the sight of Lilla may have you renewed. Her gait and form seem very familiar to me, continued Ellen. You do not know what strange thoughts shot through my mind while she was kissing the child. And through mine too, Ellen, yet we are probably both of us mistaken, deluded by our own hopes." Here our conversation ended. Mr. Merritt soon after entered the room, and both of us stole away that he might remain unobserved. I did not see Mr. Merritt again until I beheld him leaning upon his father-in-law's arm and heading 
the long procession which followed the infant to its grave. To describe to you Mr. Merritt's prostration of spirit, his heart-piercing woe would be impossible. I am now more than ever convinced that it is not the most excitable and impetuous temperament which feels the most deeply. Passions, the warmest and most ardent, slumber within the secret recesses of many an apparently cold heart, even as the hidden fire within the bosom of the ice-crowned volcano. Mrs. Willard has been a subject for the last two days to continual fits of hysterics, but this evening I think the violence of the attacks is abating. The whole charge of the household now devolves on Ellen, and she displays calmness, judgment, and energy of character that astonishes me. It is no poetical fiction that the fragrant flower, when crushed, gives forth a sweeter perfume, and there are human flowers whose incense is most odorous when sorrow's harsh hand weighs down their bright blossoms. End of chapter 5